0: Second John verse one, The elder unto the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace, from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. In truth and love, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth, And abideth not in the doctrine, or the teaching of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your home, neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds." Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. The Apostle John identifies himself in the authorship of this book as the elder, as we've seen in verse one. At this time, John is the last living of the 12 apostles that were uh, initially uh, walking with and ordained by Jesus to be the pillars of the early church. Uh, Scholars believe that he's well over 90 years old at this time and this is one of the last uh, messages that we have recorded that John gave to the church. He absolutely has a pastor's heart. It's remarkable to realize that Uh, When John was first called by Jesus, it's recorded for us that he was mending nets with James, his brother. And that's what John did throughout his whole ministry. And even now in the twilight years of it, he's still mending nets as he looks at the church and he sees where the holes are, where things are slipping through, and he's seeking to patch those things up. He tells us there that his audience is to the elect lady. Now, Most likely, this is not an individual person that he's speaking of, though it's quite possible that it could have been, but probably he's speaking concerning the church at large. The church is referred to uh, as a unified body, and we are called in the Bible, the bride of Christ, always in the feminine form. In, In 3 John, the letter that we'll study next week in verse 9, John says, "'I wrote an epistle unto the church.'" And so probably that's what he's referring to when he talks about this lady. It's this a letter that is unto us. He's speaking to us in a very beautiful form, as he is called to prepare the bride of Christ to meet her bridegroom uh, in that day. And then he tells us in verse two what his reason is for writing this letter. And he tells us that he's writing for the truth's sake. And perhaps you noticed it. But in the first four verses of this one chaptered letter, John mentions the truth five times. And the truth really is the theme of John's letter and his objective and his reason, even as he says that it's for the truth's sake that he's writing. It's interesting, isn't it, how old people have a way of communicating. They like to repeat themselves. And that's exactly what John is doing here. He's seeking to drive it home five times in four verses, holding that word before us, the truth, and saying to us that he's writing for the truth's sake. One of the most profound statements in the entire Bible was actually spoken by an unbeliever. I'm not saying it's the most insightful statement or the most inspirational, but it absolutely is one of the most profound. And it was spoken by Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman prefect who was trying Jesus when he was facing crucifixion and death at the hands of the Jews and of the Romans. And as Jesus Christ stood before Pilate, and Pilate didn't know what to do with him, but knew that this was an extremely confusing, politically charged, religious, and otherwise frustrating situation that he was in, he was looking for ways to set Jesus free. And as he questioned him and sought for a loophole in which he could release him, he asked him who he was and if he was a king and what his kingdom stood for. And Jesus' reply to Pilate, the word of testimony that he gave to him, is he says that I have come to bear witness of the truth. And all they that are of the truth hear my voice. That was the testimony that Jesus gave to Pilate. And Pilate's reply to Jesus when he spoke those words is that he asked the question, he said, what is truth? And perhaps one of the most profound things that has ever been spoken, because it's a question that lies somewhere in the heart of every person that's ever been created by God. What is truth? And if you think about who it's coming from, Pilate himself, he was born and brought up a citizen of the Roman Empire. At some point along the way, he got involved in politics under the emperor. He worked his way up to a pretty high position as the prefect of Judea, though it's not an easy place to serve. It certainly is a place to serve, and he was in that place. And so he had to deal with Rome on a daily basis. He had to deal with the Jews on a daily basis. He had to deal with the political system trying people for crimes and listening to cases, delivering people either unto freedom or unto crucifixion. And no doubt at this point in his life, he has seen and been around every type of personality. He's seen every type of instance and heard so many different lies and lines that people have fed to him and given to him over the years. That now he stands in the presence of truth itself and even this man who should be so discerning can't recognize it when it's standing right in front of him. And he asks the question, and he says, what is truth? And I think it's important if we're going to have a study wherein we're going to look at this whole concept of truth that we, we answer that question. What exactly is truth? Well, the definition of truth, very simply, is the established, binding, definite, unchanging facts of a given matter. It's the full story or the full picture that brings things to their proper conclusion concerning a thing. It's amazing to me that when a person is tried or gives testimony in a court of law in the United States of America, they're made to swear with their right hand upon a Bible and to repeat the words, I swear or promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, And nothing but the truth and the very nature or characteristic of truth is that it must be the truth it must be the whole truth and it must be nothing but the truth and for something to have even one bit of untruth not even that but for something to have just a fact or a part of the puzzle missing makes it not truth in order for something to be true it has to be the whole picture. Everything must be considered. Everything must be involved. It has to be 100% absolute. First John chapter 2, verse 21, John declares to us, and he says, that no lie is of the truth, meaning that if something is a half-truth, that it's not true at all. Or if something is a partial truth, meaning that it's true, but it only gives a part of the picture, or a part of the story then that is not truth at all. In order for it to be truth, it has to be absolutely 100% true. If something is 99% truth, then that makes it 100% unreliable. And the reason is because if something is 1% untrue, then you never know what 1% that actually is. And if there's 1% of something that's untrue, then it calls into question the other 99%, whether or not it actually is true, and can I absolutely trust it? If there was a tree that promised if you climbed its branches, you could reach all the way to heaven. And of that tree, there were 100 branches, but one of them, though it looked like it was stable and steady and could carry your weight, one of those branches if you stepped on it it would break and you would fall to your doom would you climb and trust that tree probably not because you wouldn't know what one percent of those 100 branches it was and if you were to step on it then you would perish to your death and so truth must be reliable it's the chief characteristic of truth what's the value of truth the value of truth is that it brings confidence to its possessor if a person has true directions To a place that they're trying to get then they have confidence that they're going to reach their destination because their directions are true if a person has true information concerning a matter then they have confidence that they're going to come to the proper conclusions concerning that matter because their information is complete and true if a person is seeking a method to accomplish something if they have a true method then they can have confidence that the outcome is going to be successful because the method is reliable, it's true. And so the value of truth is that it removes doubt and it removes a fear of failure and it gives confidence to the person that possesses the truth. Now, every man, woman, and child has a desire for truth. There's a hunger for truth in every person that lives within the world. And that hunger for truth drives many things within our world. When you think about the things that people spend money on, the things that people seek out and pursue, millions and billions of dollars each year are spent on books that people purchase because they're searching for truth in given matters, things that they are failing in or feel like they're lost in, and so they'll spend money on books. Search engines, Google and Yahoo and Bing and other online Avenues where people can pursue information are filled with web pages and blogs and opinions that people have put forward because people are searching for truth. I mean, just about anything that I ever put into a Google search, Google already knows the sentence that I'm putting in when I've just gotten three or four letters into it. Why? Because I'm not the first person that sought the information that I'm trying to obtain from it. Why? Because people are searching for truth. They want to know things. YouTube videos, and I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The number of sources that people turn to to try to find truth for the things that they need in their life. And so we wonder and we say, well, what are the areas where people are looking for truth? Well, people are looking for truth in relationships, aren't they? I mean, if you look at the books and articles that are the bestsellers and the top hits, there are things that have to do with how to have a successful marriage, how to raise children in a proper way, how to get along with co-workers, how to thrive in a social setting or in a social situation. People want truth concerning relationships, also concerning health. Many people seek out information concerning how to be healthy and how to Make the most of the life that they have on this earth and to stretch out the time as much as they absolutely can. And so people pursue truth as it concerns their health. Another thing is finances and money. People want to know how to make money. And so they'll spend money in order to learn how to make money, seeking for truth in all of these things. Well, the question that we have is that if people are searching for truth in all of these things, and even to the present day, there's such a pursuit of truth and yet man hasn't found that one truth that can absolutely answer all things, then the question is, does truth actually exist? And the answer is a resounding, absolutely, yes, truth exists. You say, well, then why are people still searching so diligently? The answer is because people don't necessarily like the truth when it comes. If someone's seeking advice in a relationship... And the answer that they're given for the need that they have is that they need to die to themselves and stop being selfish in the relationship and live and exist in order to serve and love the other person. That's absolutely true. It will work every time, but I don't want to hear it. If someone says that the key to my health is that I have to be diligent with my diet and my exercise programs, well, I don't like the truth there. I want you to tell me what can I eat the most of and do the least (laughs) while I'm doing that and still thrive and be healthy and have the most. I don't want that truth. I don't like it. If you tell me that the key to financial success is that I have to work hard, I don't want to hear it. I want to do the least in order to obtain the most, and so I'll seek out a truth that fits my desires, and that's what most people do. And in the process, they neglect and they leave off truth. They fail to come to realize what truth is. That's why man can't find it. But when a person finds truth and they walk in truth and they live in truth, then they're guaranteed that the outcome is going to be successful because they're living in truth. Truth brings success. So the question then becomes, where is truth found? If truth exists... And if truth brings confidence and success, then where do I find truth? Well, we turn to the Bible, and we hear what it says. And the Bible tells us three sources or three places that really all are one concerning where truth is. The first answer, John chapter 14, verse 6. The word that Jesus gave to Philip just a few days, a few hours, really, before he would go to the cross. And he said to Philip, Philip, you know the way to the Father. And Philip said to Jesus, how can we know the way? We don't know the way. And Jesus said to Philip, he said, I am the way. And then he said this, I am the truth and I am the life. I am the truth, Jesus said. And so the Bible declares to us that Jesus is the truth. Well, that means that if Jesus is the truth, then Jesus is 100% what he claimed to be. Well, even in his very name, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation, that God is our salvation. Well, if Jesus is truth, then even his name must be true to who he is. So the Bible declares that Jesus is not only God, but that he is the source and way in which man is saved. Not only is who he is true, but what he claimed to be and what he claimed to do also must be true if Jesus is truth. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, the bread of God that gives life unto the world. And so that must be true if Jesus is truth, that he is the one, the source in which mankind can live. Jesus said, I am the door, and if by me anyone enter in, he will find pasture, he will find life. It's the same passage where he says that I've come to give man life and life more abundantly. Jesus said that he is the way. Or that he is the path that leads to everlasting life. Well, if Jesus is truth, then that must be true concerning this man, Jesus. Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never perish. And though he were dead, yet will he live. Jesus is the one that gives eternal life. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who gives my life for the sheep. So if Jesus is truth, then that means that Jesus is 100% all of these things without flaw or without error. Now, what's amazing to me is the exclusiveness of each of those claims. He didn't say, I am a way of salvation, or I am a door that leads to life, or I am a source of bread that gives life unto the world. Or I am one way unto the resurrection. But in each instance, Jesus was exclusive and he said, I am the way. There's only one. And thus there is only one truth found under heaven and it is found in the person of Christ. Now those are extraordinary claims when you think about the things that Jesus claimed to be. And when you consider and ponder the claims that Jesus made, if those things are actually true, then he's pretty remarkable, isn't he? I mean, if I were to sit here tonight and claim before you that I was an apple tree and that I could produce apples for you, you, know, you would look at me and you would say, well, that's a very interesting claim that you've just made. You know, There's either something about you that we can't see and that we don't know, or you are absolutely crazy and out of your mind, or you're just a bad liar. Because you're claiming to be an apple tree, and you look just like a human being, like everything that we've ever seen. And that might be true. I might be a liar, or I might be a lunatic. I could be crazy. Or there could be something about me that you just don't know, and I actually might be an apple tree. And that's all good and all. We all go home, and that's fine. But if I ask you to invest in me, and I tell you that I will supply you with eternal apples and that your investment in me will also spread to other people that can have eternal apples as well. Well, now I've crossed a line because I have the perfect right to be crazy or to lie, though it's not the right thing to do. But once I ask you to give your allegiance and to invest in me, if those things are not true, then I've become a charlatan and a wicked man. Well, Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the truth. He claims to be the way unto salvation. He claims to be the source of eternal life and the resurrection exclusively the way to the Father and the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Now, that means that he's either lying because he looks just like a man, yet he claims to be God, or he's crazy because he really thinks that he is God and he's actually not, or there's something about Jesus that we just don't recognize when we look at him in his humanity. That's his right to say those things and be those things. But once Jesus asks you and I to invest in him, not just our money, but to give him our very lives, to entrust to him our eternal salvation and our successful navigation through this life, if those things aren't true, then it's not good enough for, for us just to call Jesus a liar or a crazy man. He becomes the most wicked Deceiving charlatan that ever walked the planet because he's claiming to be able to produce something that he knows that he cannot produce. Thus, he's either 100% true or he is 100% false. There is no middle ground. And Jesus said resoundingly, I am the truth. 100% of what I claim to be and 100% of what I say is absolutely 100% true in john chapter 17 verse 17 truth is also defined as the word of god it's red letter territory it's jesus praying the night before he was crucified and he prayed this for you and i in verse 17 he said father sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth When Jesus talked about the word, he was talking about the logos, the logos, the written or the recorded word of God, the scriptures that you and I hold in our hand. From Genesis to Revelation, from in the beginning, God created to the amen at the end of the book of Revelation, all of what's recorded for us in the Bible, Jesus purported and put forth to us that it is truth. Now, in order for it to be truth, that means that it must be 100% true and 100% reliable. That it's the established, unchanging facts of the matter. Now, outside of our salvation, this is huge to think about. I mean, our salvation is the main thing, right? If we're not saved, then nothing else matters. But once we are, and that's established in Christ, think about what it means that the scripture is truth. Because the Bible deals with all of life. It touches everything that we do on a daily basis. It touches our relationships. It touches our behavior and ideals. It touches life in the world. It touches politics. It touches all of everything. And yet, if it's true, then think about the resource that we have in the word of God. The word is absolutely true. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thorough and complete unto every good work. And so God has given us his word and he declares before us that his word is truth, that this source that we have before us is true. The third source that the Bible says is truth is recorded for us in 1 John 5, verse 6. And John declares there, he says, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is truth. And so not only is Jesus the truth and not only is the Bible the truth, but the Holy Spirit is also the truth. Now, why is that so valuable to us or so essential for us? Because not every one of us has all of the Bible memorized, right? And the Bible says that those that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons and the daughters of God. And thus we rely upon the Holy Spirit to help us in the areas where maybe we don't know what we're to do. We want to walk in the Spirit. Well, if the Spirit is truth, and the Word is truth, and Jesus is truth, then what that means is that the Holy Spirit will never lead me or instruct me contrary to what's written in the word of God or what's seen in the person of Jesus Christ by his example. And that to me is an amazing tether that I need to help me from being deceived. Is that I have the word of God and the person of Christ to help me understand the spirit's promptings and leadings within my life. But the spirit leads us into all truth. And that's what Jesus said the spirit would do when he comes, that he would lead us into all truth. So the singular truth that is three and one in the same that we have before us tonight is that we have Jesus who is the truth. We have the word of God that is the truth and we have the Holy Spirit that is the truth and that's been put before us here. Now John says in verse 4 concerning the church or the lady that he's writing to, He says that I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And so John's praise or John's joy as he writes this letter to this church or to these Christians is that he heard a report and found that they are walking in the truth, meaning that their lives are set in position and in alignment with what is absolutely true. It means to walk in truth that they had entrusted their lives into the hands of Jesus Christ for salvation, for leading and lordship. The relationship between creation and creator was in the right place. They had come to him in repentance for salvation, laid their sins at the foot of the cross, asked him for his forgiveness, and Jesus Christ was alive in their lives. Not just for their salvation, but he was leading them and they were following him. Even as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And thus to walk in truth means that they were in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It also means that they trusted the word of God 100% for their destination in life, for the conclusions that they would come to, and the outcomes in what they pursued. The word of God was completely their guide because they were walking in truth. They weren't relying upon any outside thing. And it also means to walk in truth that they were filled with and being led by the person of the Holy Spirit. And so John was able to look at these Christians and say, I rejoice to hear and know that you're walking in truth, that truth is alive in you and you're alive in the truth and that things are working in your life the way that they're supposed to be. Will you say, okay, John, did you just write a postcard to this church in order to elevate the truth and then praise them for walking in the truth and that's it? You just wanted to say, hey, good job. Keep doing what you're doing. No, 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 no. John's purpose for writing the letter is given to us in verses 7 and 8. He says, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So John says to them, though you're walking in truth, you must understand this. My dying words to you. The thing that I would look you deep in the eyes and thunder with whatever voice I have before you is to understand that truth has enemies. That there are those in this world and there are forces in the world that are seeking to pull you away from the truth and to deceive you so that you're no longer walking in truth. And then the outcome of that, if that happens to you and you're no longer walking in truth, he says in verse eight, he says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. In other words, if it happens to you that you are deceived by the subtleness of deception or deceivers, then it is possible for you to lose the things that you have gained in your Christian walk. And it is possible for that then to reflect upon the way that you experience eternity and that your reward will be diminished. Hold fast to the truth. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the Spirit was first poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost, when things were first happening, it tells us there that the, that the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's truth and then in fellowship, communion, and in prayer. The word steadfast means that they had to hold to something wherein there were forces that were trying to move them away from it, that if they were to give in to those forces, they would be immediately swept away from what it was that they were to give themselves to. But they were steadfast in the apostle's doctrine and the truth. Paul, the apostle, wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, and he said, hold fast to the form of sound words, that's truth. That you have heard of me and what you've heard of me in, uh, in front of many witness declare unto those that are faithful as well. What does it mean to hold fast? It means, Timothy, listen, there are forces in this world that are seeking to rip truth out of your hands. And if you let them, then you'll be subverted and swayed because the forces of deception that will pull you away from truth are very real and they are very powerful. And if we're deceived, then we lose what we've gained and we lose our heavenly reward. Deception in the life of a Christian happens when we allow ourselves to drift from absolute truth and we begin walking in something else other than the truth that God has given us to walk in. It was in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when God was first establishing the nation of Israel. And Abraham had been blessed by God. He had passed that blessing on to Isaac, his son. And Isaac was reaching the time of his elder years when it was time for him to pass on the blessing of Abraham to one of his twin sons. And the desire of Isaac was to give it to the eldest, whose name was Esau. The Bible tells us that Esau was a man of the earth. He was a worldly man. And that he wasn't God's choice, but it was Jacob whom God wanted to to call. Now, Jacob wanted that blessing, but Isaac, not being quite the spiritual man that Abraham, his father, was, desired to give it to Esau. Well, Jacob, being the heel catcher, the supplanter, the deceiving person that he was, him and his mother came up with a plan. And as Isaac sent Esau off hunting to go get some venison to bring back for the meal before the blessing, Rebecca, the mother, quickly grabbed Jacob and said, here, put these clothes on that will make you feel hairy like your brother. Your father's eyesight isn't so good anymore. And I'm going to cook meat the way that he likes it. And you're going to go in pretending to be Esau. And you're going to bring this meal to your father. And he's going to bless you thinking that he's blessing Esau. And so Jacob goes, Come on, mom. I mean, really, you think this is going to work? Our voices are different. He's, he's burly and he's out in the field. I'm a kitchen guy. I, you know, it's not going to work. I'm, a, I'm homely, you know. And she says, Just trust me. I know your father. Do it. And so he does it. He puts on the fur. He brings in the venison or the, the lamb. And he comes in and he says, Hello, father. It's me, your son, Esau. And I'm here for the blessing. And Isaac, who we're told was blind, he couldn't see, he said this. It says, the voice, what I hear is the voice of Jacob. Come here. And he touched him. And he said, the voice is that of Jacob, but the feel is that of Esau, my son. And the scripture declares that he discerned him not. Isaac trusted in what he felt rather than what he heard. He didn't go with word. He went with feeling, and thus he was deceived. And he gave the blessing to Jacob, though it was God's will. It wasn't his will. There was deception. Why? Because he trusted in his feelings. There are many Christians, even to the present day, that find themselves deceived because they trust in their feelings rather than the facts of what God has spoken and what God has said. Anytime we lean upon our feelings rather than the facts of what God said, we are in dangerous ground and we are headed for deception. We're going to be deceived. If we trust in our feelings, then we might think that we're not saved when we really are. Well, I don't feel saved today. And so we get under a cloud of condemnation and we forget the fact that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we think that God is upset with us when he's not because we're gauging our spiritual health based upon the way we feel in our physical existence. That's a very unreliable place to walk and stand. Sometimes we feel like we're okay with God when in fact we are not. Because God has told us certain things that we're to do or not do. We're doing those things, but we say, well, I just feel in my heart that God knows and he's okay with this. Sometimes it's a relationship or the way that we're conducting our behavior in a certain way or Using the resources that he's given to us I just feel that this is okay. dangerous ground. Anytime we step aside from the truth in order to, to follow what we think is the right feeling in a thing, listen, feelings are extremely deceptive. Jeremiah 17:9 says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who could even know it. And for those that seek to follow their own heart and think that they're going to be successful, spiritually, are already deceived and they're headed for even greater problems. We stand on facts as Christians, not on feelings. We stand upon what God says, not the way that we feel. God free us from walking by feelings and not by facts. And when we're walking by feelings, we are not walking in truth. Feelings are deceptive. God came to Solomon very early in his life. He was a young man. David had seen the potential in him and the power to rule a kingdom. And David had called Solomon to his bedside and said, you will be the king after me. And Solomon, being just a young man and not knowing how to rule, a little bit apprehensive about the task, he has a dream and God comes to him in the dream. And God says to Solomon, he says, blank check, ask whatever you will and I'm going to give it to you. And Solomon said, what? What? God's given me a blank check. I can have whatever I want. And he thought about it for a minute. And he said, I'm a young man. I've been put into a very prestigious, powerful, and yet a position that holds very much responsibility, and I don't know how to do it. And he said, God, if you would give to me a discerning, wise, and understanding heart that I might know how to rule this people and that I might know how to go out and in among them and lead them in the proper way. God, that's what I would ask of you. And it says that the thing that Solomon asked for pleased the Lord and that God then said to Solomon, because you didn't ask for riches or wealth or the life of your enemies, not only am I going to answer your prayer and give you the wisdom you've asked for, but I'm also going to give you all of the other things that you didn't ask for. And not only was Solomon the wisest king that ever lived, but he was also the richest by far and the most opulent. But God had said to the king that when you come into your throne you're not to multiply unto yourselves horses riches or wives and you're not to go to Egypt to do those things God was very clear in his instruction of what he was not to do but Solomon thought well I'm wise and certainly I know how to handle the things that God has given to me and he's already promised me riches So certainly probably won't mind if I move a little bit into those other areas that he has also forbidden. And so he killed two birds with one stone and he went to Egypt and took a wife, the daughter of the Pharaoh, traded for horses and he didn't stop there, but he multiplied wives to the point where he had 700 of them and 300 concubines. I mean, talk about going over the top against what God has said. But Solomon presumed or assumed that because of his wisdom or because of God's patience or silence in the matter, that it was okay with God. Solomon stopped walking in truth and he started walking in presumption. He mistook God's silence and God's patience for God's approval and God's acceptance. And God never approves of or accepts the things that he has already said that he doesn't. Someone has very well spoken that the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. And there have been many Christians throughout the years that have turned aside from the truth and have been deceived by presumption or assuming that something is okay with God when in fact it is not and they have found themselves ground to powder in the error of their ways. Solomon's story didn't turn out so good. His heart turned away from God. He died young. He set up a split within a united nation. And he sowed the seeds that would ultimately end in the nation's destruction a few hundred years later through the altars of idolatry that he erected. Just as God said that many wives will turn your heart from me, that's exactly what happened in Solomon's life. And truth is truth, isn't it? And if God says to us, don't do something or do do something, then for us to swerve from that in presumption and think that things are going to work out okay is absolutely foolishness. For us to walk in presumption is not to walk in truth. We're called to walk in truth. In the days following Solomon, when his son Rehoboam took to the throne, and the split happened that Solomon caused through his rebellion. A man by the name of Jeroboam took 10 tribes and became a self-made king up in the northern part of Israel. And he led those 10 tribes into deep idolatry. He built an idolatrous altar in a place called Bethel. And there was a young prophet, a true man of God that had come out of Judah and had gone into the area where Jeroboam had erected this idolatrous altar. And as Jeroboam offered a sacrifice upon this altar, the young prophet cried out in the word of the Lord, and he says, thus saith God, that altar is going to be torn in half, and the, altars are, or the ashes will be poured upon the ground, and God is going to raise up a young man named Josiah who will bring the nation back to God again. And when Jeroboam heard this prophecy that was against what he was doing, he lifted up his hand and said, seize that prophet. But as he lifted his hand, his arm was shriveled up and it became crippled and frozen in its place. And then the altar was broken in half and the ashes poured upon the ground, just like it says, and you can read it. First Kings 13, it says, according to the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord was given. And so Jeroboam repented and he said, pray for me. And the prophet prayed for him and his hand was restored. And Jeroboam was so impressed by what happened that he said to the young prophet, listen, come back to my palace. I want you to eat with me tonight. And listen to what the prophet said. He said, no, for it was commanded me by the word of the Lord that I'm not to eat food or drink water in this place, but I'm to go home a different way than the way that I came and I'm not to eat here. And so he left, he obeyed the word of the Lord but as he was going an older prophet heard about all that took place met the younger prophet in the way and said to him hey come to my house and eat with me today and the young man said no 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 no. the lord told me that i'm not to eat water or eat food or drink water in this place but i'm to go home a different way than the way that i came and the old prophet said to the young prophet he said ah but God spoke to me this day by an angel. And he said to me that you're to come to my house and you're to eat with me. Well, the young prophet looked at the old prophet and he saw the gray in his beard and he saw the white in his hair and he saw everything that appeared on the outside to be legitimate and real. And he didn't discern the fact that he was lied to. And he disobeyed the command or the truth of the word that God gave to him. And the young prophet turned aside and went to the house of the older prophet. Once he arrived, the older prophet looked at him and said. And the word of the Lord came to the old prophet. And he said, oh, my. In that you did not obey the voice of the Lord and that you turned aside unto me, God says, you're never going to see your house again, but you will be torn in pieces by a lion before you arrive. And the young man went his way and sure enough, a lion met him in the way, tore him to pieces and then sat down next to his carcass, his donkey standing on one side, the deceased man of God in the middle and the lion sitting on the other side. And when the people came and saw, they saw the lion, the man, and the donkey. And yet the lion did not eat the man nor kill the donkey. It was exactly as God said. What happened? A young man who had the truth of God's word given to him stepped out of the truth and he followed appearances and what he perceived to be something based upon human reason rather than what God said. Well, this man seems to be so mature. This man seems to be so spiritual. This situation, his sons, the reputation that he has. I mean, he's written books that have been published. I've been on his website and his blog. I've been personally helped by his ministry. He has a resume and credentials that I could never touch as a young minister. This guy must be legit in what he's saying. And he went with the word of a man instead of the command of the Lord. And it cost him his life. When we walk according to human reason and the appearance of what we see with our eyes rather than the facts of what God has given us in the truth, then we set ourselves up to be torn by the lion. Who's the lion? The Bible says that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's the master deceiver. So what's the point? Proverbs chapter three, verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. That's human reason. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Don't go on appearances. Don't go on human reason. Go on the truth of the word. When we walk in human reason and we walk according to the appearance of what we see with our eyes, we are not walking in truth. And thus we are in danger of being deceived. Perhaps the most solemn warning of all was given by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gave a parable of four soils. Those four soils represented the various conditions of human hearts. And he said that the seed, which he said was the truth, the word of God, fell upon each of those four soils. Upon some, it was stolen away right away. Upon some, it sprang up quickly but had no depth, and it was scorched and burned and destroyed. But upon the final two, he said, there was no problem with the soil, but upon one of them, it says that the seed took root and it began to grow. But he said this, he said that thorns also grew up with the word and choked it so that it could bring no fruit to perfection. And then the fourth soil was good soil with nothing impeding. And that seed grew and bore forth fruit and came to perfection and fruition. But when the disciples asked him and they said, Lord, what does the parable mean? What's the point of it? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus said the seed that fell among thorns, and that's the one that we need to be concerned about. If you're here tonight, that's the one that you need to be concerned about. He said that the seed sprang up, but the thorns are the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts for other things. They choke the word, the truth, so that it becomes unfruitful. There have been many Christians throughout the ages and the times of past, through church history and even to the present day. That because people have gotten their eyes off of eternity and they have begun to live their lives exclusively for what they can experience, obtain and have in the here and now. They have stepped aside from walking in truth and their lives have become choked out and they've become unfruitful. And that's a serious warning that was given to us by Jesus. The deceitfulness of riches. How many have traded truth away in the pursuit of earthly things or a life on earth that they think will be satisfying? Here's the truth. You want the truth? There is nothing in this world or on this earth that can truly satisfy or that can last and a life that is lived in the pursuit of those things worldly things is a wasted life and when we live exclusively for this life and we allow the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for things now to grab a hold of our affections in our hearts then we are not walking in truth we've been deceived thinking that this world is all there is the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians in chapter 3 in the first four verses, and he would say, do not set your affections upon things upon the earth, but set your affection upon things above. For you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that when Christ, who is our life, will appear, then will we appear also with him in glory. And God would not have us to be deceived by seeking after a life in the here and now. As we close Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23. We seek to apply this to our lives. Solomon wrote and he said this. He said, buy the truth and do not sell it. Or buy the truth and sell it not. And every one of the examples, whether it was Isaac or whether it was Solomon or the young prophet or the Christian who's choked by the word or choked by the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches. In all four of those examples, they turned aside from the truth, from the word of God and stood upon something else. And John warns us and he says that if we do that, then we will lose the things that we have wrought and we will not have a full reward in heaven. We lose those advantages. What does it mean to buy the truth? You musicians, you you guys can come. We're, we're, We're wrapping up here. What does it mean to buy the truth? To buy something means that you expend something that you have in order to obtain something that you don't have. And so what's the scripture telling us concerning the truth? It's saying whatever it is that you need to give up in your life in order to obtain or retain unto yourself the truth, that's a worthy expenditure. You're never going to regret giving something up in order to have more of the truth written in your heart. The second half of that command, he says, once you have it, don't sell it. What does it mean to sell something? It means that I'm giving something up in exchange for receiving something else on the other end. So in this case, I'm selling the truth. I'm giving up truth in order to get something else. It's always a foolish move. I sit with people all the time that have buyer's remorse. You guys know what buyer's remorse is, right? It's when you buy something that you really kind of wish you didn't buy, And you wish you had what you gave up for that something back. And you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done it. Why am I so stupid that I did that again? I said I'd never. And and I talk to people all the time that have buyer's remorse spiritually. They'll look at me and they'll say, I don't know how I got where I am today. But at one point, I never wanted to become the person that I am or the person that I've become. And how did this happen? And somewhere in there, they sold the truth in order to obtain something else. And it's a sad position when you see something in it. So how can we walk in truth and stay there? What's the answer for you and I that we don't see ourselves as deceived? That we can look to ourselves, like John says, and obtain a full reward. Number one is be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse two, he says that the truth is in you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the truth ain't in you. And if the truth ain't in you, then you can't walk in truth. So number one is to make sure that you're in that right relationship with Jesus and the Father through the Son. That's number one. The second thing is to have a working knowledge of the Word of God with continual growth in it. Let the Word of God continually be your guide. Read it daily. Study it. Meditate on it. Make it the life principle, your ideals, everything that you are, your very identity. Make the Word of God your life, the lens through which you see everything else. Why did God say to Joshua to meditate in it day and night? Why does it say in Psalm 1 that blessed is the man who meditates in the word of God day and night that whatever he does will prosper? Why did David say to Solomon, take the word of God and meditate in it day and night? Because the truth profits all things. And God calls us to have a working, living knowledge of the word of God and continually grow in it. And then number three, and finally, don't ever for one moment let heaven out of your sight the moment that you and i forget that we're headed for heaven and we begin to live for earth and think that this is the only life i've got and i've got to eke out everything i can and make the most of this time that i have now and we forget that these are the shadow lands and that that's the reality then we're headed for deception this world is not our home we've been bought with a price Therefore, glorify God in our body. If you and I begin to live for earth, then we will one day say with Saul, King Saul, that I have erred exceedingly and I've played the fool. And I pray that never happens to any one of us. So John's word to us in this epistle is this. Look to yourselves that none of you lose the things that you have already gained and that you have when you come to heaven a full reward. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this exhortation. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to walk in truth. That your heart would rejoice when you look at each of us because you see that our lives are set in a place where truth is established fully. It is our path, our destination, our vision, our desire, our food, and our all. And I pray that tonight for anyone here tonight that's been deceived or is being deceived, Or that needs to just come back into truth in some way. Or that needs to sell what they've traded truth for and come back to truth. Oh God, that you would make it and grant it so in our lives. Lord, we hear the dying cry of the Apostle John. And we desire, Lord, that we would not only walk well, but that we would finish well. And so we look to you for these things. And we ask you to make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.